Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. I'm Kathy with a K. And I'm Kathy with a C. And here's to season three of Killer Destinations. Today's destination is Erie, Pennsylvania. The city is located in northwestern Pennsylvania and sits on the south shore of one of the five Great Lakes. It got its name from both the lake and the Native American tribe that resided along its shores. It is the fifth largest city in Pennsylvania with a population of almost 95,000. Erie is currently ranked as the third snowiest city in the United States, with an average snowfall of over 100 inches. Although Lake Erie is one of the smallest Great Lakes, coming in fourth in surface area, it touches the most states, running along Pennsylvania, Michigan, New York, and Ohio in the United States, as well as Ontario, Canada. This designation is what makes it a great location for residents and visitors alike, because in fewer than two hours, you can be in Buffalo, New York, Cleveland, Ohio, or Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. The city's manufacturing sector remains prominent in the local economy, while insurance, healthcare, technology, service industries, and tourism are emerging as significant economic drivers. The area is also rife with wineries, as the region is an ideal climate for growing grapes. Today, the area also boasts golf courses, hunting and fishing, boating, and other water sports to occupy your days, while the nightlife offers plenty of restaurants and bars. But in 2003, all of these diversions came to a halt when the eyes of the city, state, and nation were drawn to an unexpected and horrific public murder. Before we start, We wanted to let everyone know that we did something special for this podcast. This is a case that shocked the nation when it happened. And from the beginning, there were twists and turns and rumors and innuendo, some of which were never fully resolved in the public's minds. So for the very first time, we recorded the discussion we had after we recorded the podcast, because a lot of times we will just talk through some of the questions that remain for us even after the case is closed. And that was especially true of this case. We have posted this conversation on our Patreon page, but it's available for free to anyone who wants to listen. Go to patreon.com, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash killer destinations. And if you scroll down just a little bit on the landing page, you'll be able to see our conversation. And let us know what you think in the comments. The information for this case comes from FBI files, court documents, and information provided in books and presentations by Dr. Jerry Clark, the lead FBI investigator on the case. In addition, a 2018 documentary called Evil Genius covered this case, and for the first time, officers, federal, state, and local, were able to speak on camera with many of those involved in the case. Any part where we quote law enforcement or attorneys is information learned from this documentary. On Thursday, August 28, 2003, at around 2.30 p.m., a customer walked into the PNC Bank at the Summit Town Center on Peach Street. The man stood in line, picking up a lollipop out of a basket at one of the tables next to him, and waited a few minutes before a teller was available. When he walked up, he handed the teller a note consisting of multiple pages and asked to speak to the bank manager. The teller told him the bank manager was out until 3 p.m., to which the man replied that he didn't have until 3 and he needed $250,000 immediately. He then raised his shirt to show her something that resembled a gray box that was secured to his torso as well as a large metal collar around his neck. It was only then that the teller looked at the note the man handed her and realized the bank was being robbed. The teller then got cash out of her drawer and went around to the other tellers and took all of their money out of their drawers. She went back to the man and handed him $8,702 
telling him that there wasn't any additional cash the tellers could access until the manager returned. When he heard that, he took the cash and turned around and walked out of the building. As he walked out, the teller noticed that he was holding what looked like a cane next to his body, but she didn't see an obvious limp. When the man left the bank, an employee immediately called 911 to report what had happened. One of the employees was also able to describe for police the car the bank robber got into after leaving the bank. As police cars raced to the bank, Pennsylvania state troopers saw a vehicle about two blocks away from the bank that matched the description of the robber's car. They pulled the car over, ordered him out of the vehicle, told him to kneel, and placed him in handcuffs. Once he was secured, the troopers began talking to him. He identified himself as 46-year-old Brian Wells and confirmed that he was the individual who robbed the bank. But he said he did it because he was forced to. According to FBI files, Brian told officers he delivered pizzas for a local restaurant, and on the day of the robbery, he was sent to deliver two pizzas to a remote radio tower just outside of town off Peach Street the same road the PNC Bank was on. And Kath, this tower is tall, metal, object kind of off on its own in a remote place used to convey radio frequencies. Brian said two black guys jumped him and when he tried to run away, one of the men fired a gun, stopping him in his tracks. That was when the two men put the metal collar and vest with the bomb around his neck and torso. But he couldn't provide a description of the two men. Brian said he was then given verbal and written instructions by the man as to how he would rob the PNC bank and what Brian needed to do in order for the explosive device to be deactivated. So, Kath, this was the point when Brian told the troopers that he had a bomb strapped to his chest and he was wearing this really large T-shirt. It was a white T-shirt that said guests on the front of it, which I'm wondering if there was supposed to be irony there or not. But you couldn't see the collar and you couldn't see the bomb that was strapped to the chest. He said to the police, I have this bomb strapped to my chest. There were three troopers with him at the time that I could see in the video. Not that I was there. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Made it sound like I was there. One of the troopers, I don't know where he got these scissors from, but he runs up to him. He really quickly cuts up the left side of his shirt, cuts up the right side of the T-shirt, flips the front flap up so that he could see if something was really there. And sure enough, there is something that looks a lot like a bomb attached to his chest. These troopers just 86 that place as fast as they can, totally. walking backwards and got behind their cars. The troopers immediately called in the Erie Police Bomb Squad to come out to determine not only if it actually was an explosive device, but if it was to disable it. However, Kath, it turned out that officers had shut down the streets around the bank. Obviously, they'd been robbed and there was a potential bomb. But because they did that, Peach Street was a major thoroughfare. And so the traffic in the city came to a standstill. And this delayed the bomb squad getting there because it had to make its way through this traffic. While they waited for the bomb squad, Brian was now sitting back on crossed legs, calmly telling the officers what happened. Brian told officers that after he robbed the bank, he had followed instructions in one of the notes that he had been given and went to a nearby McDonald's parking lot to pick up additional instructions that had been hidden under a rock. He got back into his car to go to a third location and that was when he was stopped by the state troopers. At that point, Brian told the officers that he only had 20 minutes to deactivate the device before it exploded. And Kathy kept repeating, I'm not lying, I'm not lying, because the police weren't coming anywhere near him. After about 30 minutes, and still waiting for the bomb squad that was now just a couple of minutes away, Brian was sitting Indian style in front of his own car with his hands cuffed behind his back when an audible beeping started coming from the device. Brian immediately became extremely agitated and was pleading with the police, please take this off my neck. You've got to get this off my neck. The beeping sped up and seconds later, the bomb detonated and he was blown onto his back. His injuries were fatal. Detectives found more notes in his car that basically directed Brian to go on what was essentially a scavenger hunt to find the four keys he needed to deactivate the bomb and release it from his neck. Police believed Brian was involved in the bank heist, perhaps the only one, but detectives still followed the drawings in the notes and went to the remaining locations listed. 
They didn't expect to find anything, but at the first location, they found what the note said would be there. A plastic Folgers coffee can with a red top and a key inside. Detectives then went to the next place on the list and found a tree with a piece of orange caution tape wrapped around a branch that had the word Vietnam written on it and a key attached, just as the note had said. Retired Pennsylvania State Trooper Lamont King said that as they looked through the woods across from where the note was found, he noticed a blue minivan on the other side that appeared to be driving toward them. Trooper King said he saw the driver look over and notice them, and he stopped the van. The driver sat there for a few minutes before reversing the van and driving off. And the trooper said the van was so far away they couldn't catch it, but he assumed it was the person who'd left the notes for Brian to find. Investigators also determined the cane Brian had with him at the bank actually turned out to be a single-shot 12-gauge shotgun that had been created to resemble a cane. And Kath, you know what was weird about this is in the documentary we referenced, the bank videos played. And even though Brian had just told the teller that he didn't have till three o'clock that, you know, he had a bomb strapped to him. When he walked out of the bank, he had the cane in one hand and he had the bag of eighty seven hundred plus dollars in the other. And as he strolled out of the bank, his arms were like swinging next to each other. Like, do, 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 do. Like, I wonder if he knew that it was a 12 gauge shotgun, because who swings a gun like that if you don't expect it to go off? Interesting. So jurisdiction quickly became an issue. The state police believed it was their case because the murder happened on their turf. The ATF believed they had jurisdiction because of the use of an explosive device. And the FBI said it was their case because of the bank robbery. Eventually, it was all settled where the FBI took point and was assisted by the other two agencies. Think they did a uh, rock, paper, scissors to decide that? Yeah, can you imagine? No. <laughs> but how well, else did they well, decide? Let's arm wrestle. Exactly. <laughs> oh, my God. That just reminded me years ago, <laughs> your sister and I went with a bunch of friends down to Carlsbad for the evening. And there was three couples. There was a king bed, a queen bed, and two twin beds. <laughs> and you rochambeaued for you, it? No, we arm wrestled. No, the women or the men? Your sister and I. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> because the people like, you know, obviously the people who invited us down get the king bed. And so then it was who got who which gets other? the worst bed. Yeah. But here's the funny thing. So I'm right handed. Your sister's left handed. I lost when we were doing right hand. Like, are you kidding? She, Yeah. She beat my dominant hand and then I beat her dominant hand. Oh, that's weird. Yeah. And then so, of course, our husbands were watching this because it was like, you know, I really wish somebody had filmed that. (laughs) (laughs) So I totally like psyched myself up and I beat her. So I was able to take the queen. Did you do two out of three? We did two out of three. Okay. Yeah. But isn't that funny? I it lost is. on my dominant arm and she lost on her dominant arm anyway. And then we went back to my dominant arm. So I was like super freaked out. I'm like, I've got to win. I've got to win. And she did. <laughs> exactly. But our husbands were more like, oh, my God, I can't believe they're doing this. And what was funny, it was your sister's idea because she's like, feats of strength. Let's do feats of strength. Because I was like, oh, let's flip a coin. Yeah. And she was like, feats of strength. <laughs> Anyway, so it was decided the FBI was going to take point. So all of the other agencies' investigative reports up to that point, including Trooper King's, were handed over to the FBI. That night, authorities executed a search warrant at Brian Wells' house. They didn't find any physical evidence that linked him to the crime. And the only item of interest they did find was an address book with the names and numbers of several local prostitutes. When they talked to his family and neighbors, Everyone described Brian as very friendly and nice, but as a loner who lived a quiet life. And his landlady said she found it hard to believe he was involved, but also said he would be easy to influence. Investigators also followed up on the pizza delivery order. They determined the call was made at 1.30 p.m., the same afternoon as the robbery, and came from a gas station not far from the delivery site. The owner of the pizza shop initially took the call, but had trouble understanding the person, so he gave the call to Brian. Brian took the order and wrote down the directions to the radio tower. When state troopers went to the location, they were able to find tire marks that matched Brian's car, as well as shoe impressions that matched his shoes. There was also an area in the dirt near the tower that indicated some sort of struggle had taken place. But although they scoured the area looking for DNA, fingerprints, and other forensic evidence, they found nothing. Brian's body wasn't removed from the scene until around 3 a.m. the next morning, approximately 12 hours after the bomb detonated. 
His cause of death was the metal box bomb strapped to his torso when it imploded into him at least an inch, causing severe internal damage. Because the collar bomb did not detonate, law enforcement was concerned that the bomb was still alive. So the biggest concern for investigators was how to remove the collar without detonating it and destroying the evidence. Erie County Deputy Coroner Korak Timmon said that one of the notes found in Brian's car said the collar was booby-trapped and would explode if Brian or anyone else tried to remove it. As a result, he made the difficult decision to do a surgical decapitation of the body to remove the device. And Kath, I got to tell you, as we were researching this case, that actually really surprised me because I actually thought Brian had been decapitated. Like, you remember watching this, right? Oh, I remember when this was on the news. Yes, for sure. And I didn't realize there was a torso bomb. I thought it was only the collar bomb. Oh, okay. Clearly, I wasn't watching the news very carefully. But anyway, so this was just, this really surprised me as we were doing the research. Like you were surprised that he went into the autopsy with head intact. Correct. And without the collar bomb, exploded. In response to this surgical decapitation, Brian Wells's family issued a statement about their distress when they learned what was done solely for the purpose of preserving the collar bomb. They said it prevented them from getting any closure because they weren't able to have an open casket at his funeral. They believed more respect was shown for the device used to kill their loved one than for Brian's body. That would actually be very, very hard for me if I were a family member. Oh, I agree 100%. Yeah. Yeah. Something I think that the coroner really responded to as well, because in the documentary, he said it was one of the hardest decisions he'd ever had to make as a coroner before. And so he didn't know if it would help the family, but wanted them to know that he had done the surgical decapitation in such a way that he felt was very caring. Oh, my God. I don't know what that means. Did he actually use those words? He actually used those words. And I do not know what it meant. But he was... That's like carrying decapitation is an oxymoron. You would think. Yeah, exactly. But he was very emphatic about it in this documentary. On Sunday night, August 31st, three days after the bank heist, authorities discovered that one of Brian's co-workers from the pizza place named Robert Panetti had been found unresponsive in his home. There were no obvious signs of a stroke, heart attack, or injury. According to Pennsylvania trooper David Gluth, detectives learned that after the bombing, Panetti started telling people he was looking for protection because he thought the people who killed Brian were coming for him next. As it turned out, investigators went to the pizza place earlier that Sunday afternoon to speak with him but it was super busy and Panetti asked if he could move the interview to Monday. So investigators agreed, but he died on Sunday night. Panetti's mom, Virginia, spoke to reporters from the front porch of her house with an oxygen tank next to her and a cannula affixed to her nose. She was incredibly upset and said her son had nothing to do with the bank robbery or the death of Brian Wells. Preliminary autopsy results listed the cause of death as an accidental overdose or suicide. According to ATF Special Agent Jason Wick, the neck cuff was designed like a handcuff, where you bring the two sides together and it sort of locks into place with teeth. As to the torso portion of the bomb, crime scene investigators were able to find almost all of its components, and the ATF experts put together a fairly accurate replica. ATF believed that it was so intricate, it had probably taken someone more than a month to assemble. Agent Wick said the torso portion of the bomb was sophisticated. There were two pins inside the device. One started a timer and the other, if pulled, would have given Brian Wells another hour before it detonated. However, It also included a number of red herrings built into the device, which the bomb squad agreed was likely intended to keep them from defusing the bomb. For example, there were a number of wires that served no purpose, as well as a plastic cell phone that didn't do anything. In fact, there were wires that connected the torso portion to the collar, and those wires were fake. They did nothing and the collar was not designed to explode after all. There were also different booby traps added to the torso portion, including a metal plate on the back that had been scored to create shrapnel exploding out to injure or kill people nearby. Thankfully, 
it didn't work as intended. Based on how the device was constructed, ATF agents didn't believe Brian was actually meant to recover the keys that would disarm and unlock the device. It was determined that there was no way Brian could have finished the route before detonation. They believed the scavenger hunt was also a diversion, and whoever had created the device intended for the person wearing it to die. The FBI held a press conference several days after the bank heist to show the public the device used to kill Brian Wells, hoping its construction, the pieces used to build it, or even the design would trigger someone's memory. They also showed the 12-gauge shotgun that was built to look like a cane. Based on the different pieces of scrap metal used, FBI profilers believed the person who built it was likely a handyman or collected weapons of war. They hoped the builder might have shown off this gun that he built to look like a cane. The FBI also released the notes given to Brian in case people recognized the handwriting or writing styles, which of course they successfully did with the Unabomber. But while a lot of tips came in, nothing panned out. Three weeks after Brian's death, while the investigation of the collar bomb robbery was ongoing, Pennsylvania State Police were contacted by a 59-year-old man named William Rothstein who informed them that a body was being stored in a freezer in his garage. He also said there was a woman they might want to pick up and question about the dead body. Her name was Marjorie Deal Armstrong. Rothstein told police that Marge, as she was called, had shot her boyfriend, James Roden, with a 12-gauge shotgun at her home and that she had enlisted Rothstein's help in moving and storing the body. Rothstein agreed to go down to the police barracks to speak with troopers. It turned out that Rothstein had known Marge for 30 to 35 years. They dated on and off for years and at one point were engaged. He told troopers that Marge had called him about a month prior and asked him to go to her house. When he arrived, she asked him to help her move James Roden's body from her home. James was her boyfriend of more than a decade. And Kath, when Rothstein asked Marge what happened, she just flat out said, I killed him. And Rothstein told police that he agreed to help her because he felt sorry for her and he didn't want her to get in any trouble, which is why he put the body in his garage freezer. Did she say why she killed him? Not to him, no. Okay. But I think because they had known each other for so long, it's probably like if I called you and I'm like, hey. Hey, got a body. Yeah. Do you have a freezer? Ride or die, you got to help me. And you'd <laughs> right. be like. Ride or die. You'd be like, okay, Thelma, let's go. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Louise is coming. Exactly. But here's the funny thing, too, though, Kathy. Police said to Rothstein, why are you coming to us now? You've had the body there for more than a month. And he said, well, it was apparently a bridge too far. And those are my words. Marge had asked Rothstein to destroy James Roden's body by placing it in a wood chipper. So I bet you anything, Kath, she was like, you have the body, you deal with it. Oh, it's, I'm sure. It, it's your problem now. Right. Because proof she did it. Yeah. He's got possession of the body. Right. Possession's nine tenths of the <laughs> <laughs> But you know, she was, was that like. on the baby bar? It was. <laughs> but you know, she's like wiping her hands of it. Oh, totally. State Trooper Lamont King was assigned this case, and when he went into the garage, he had to make a pathway to get through all the junk that was stored inside. On the left side of the garage, he saw a large tarp hanging from the ceiling to the floor. When he pulled it back, he found the freezer. The body inside was in the fetal position and wrapped in plastic. Officers were sent to arrest Marge, and she was charged in Roden's murder. I wonder why he was in the fetal position. Because as Rothstein explained it to police, when he went to Marge's house, he went up to the second floor where she had shot him, which it really would have been more considerate to do it on the first floor. Makes transport easier. Mm -hmm. Pulled him off the mattress onto a piece of plastic. And that's what he used to drag the body down the stairs. When he was able to get to the freezer, he didn't fit. So um, he had to smush him around so that he would. Got it. Erie County Deputy Coroner Timmon arrived at the scene. He said the inside of Rothstein's house looked like an episode of Hoarders. Out from the garage, they had to move the entire freezer to the coroner's office because the body was frozen to the sides. It took four days to thaw the freezer enough that the body could be moved. Through x-rays, the coroner determined that James was killed by a shotgun blast to his head. When Trooper King arrived at Rothstein's house, he was shocked. In the past several weeks, authorities had driven past the house many times. 
Rothstein lived on Peach Street in an unpaved road that ran along his house dead-ended at the radio tower where Brian Wells delivered the pizza on the day he was killed. Rothstein's house was the only dwelling around. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member? For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Three weeks into the investigation, there are three dead bodies. Brian Wells from the bomb, Robert Panetti from an overdose, and James Roden, who was shot by his girlfriend. Since James was killed at Marge's house in Erie, the state police turned the case over to the local authorities, which was the Erie Police Department, as the state police then continued working with the FBI and ATF on the bank heist. When Erie police went to search Marge's house for evidence, like Bill Rothstein's place, Kath, it too looked like an episode of Hoarders. It's too bad that that engagement didn't work because it sounds like they were a match made in heaven. Right, I was just going to say. Marge's house was described as clutter, feces, more clutter and more feces, and cats. They removed almost a dozen dead cats from the house and saved two that had survived. Marge also had a significant amount of cash in her house. And Kath, I heard it was like up to $100,000 because she apparently didn't trust banks. Where'd she keep it? Did they tell you? All over the house. Oh, really? Yeah, they didn't tell me directly. They didn't call you? (laughs) They didn't be like, hey, listen up. I got a good story. (laughs) Hey, Missy, you got to get over here. There's cash. So, Kath, we're back at the trooper barracks where Rothstein was being interviewed by investigators. And Kath, really quickly, one of the funny things that I read is I guess that Rothstein was considered by many to be an intelligent man, almost too intelligent. But he actually said to one of the investigators in the room when he walked in, I am the smartest person in this room. Wow. Just so you know. Yeah, exactly. And you know, the investigator was like, "Uh -uh." Uh uh-huh. Yeah. (laughs) So Rothstein was eventually charged with helping hide James's body. And he was let out on bail after agreeing to take detectives on a tour of the crime scene at Marge's house to show him what happened and how he was involved. And then at his own house. When investigators got to Rothstein's house in an upstairs bedroom, they discovered that he had the mattress James was on when Marge shot him. Apparently, in order to clean up the crime scene so that Marge wouldn't get in trouble, he took the mattress too. He also told police that he used a welder's torch to destroy the shotgun Marge used to kill James. While local police searched Rothstein's house, they came across a series of notes and drawings in a downstairs room. When the police handed him one note that they didn't understand, he told them that he had written it because he was planning to commit suicide and wanted to leave a note for his family and police. Now, Kath, on the note, there were five items listed in order. One of them said he was sorry to his family. One of them said that he was sorry for the mess in his house that someone would have to clean up. But the top spot on this list said this has nothing to do with the Wells case. Nothing is going to perk police up. Right. Like a random (laughs) sentence thrown in like that. While Marge was still in jail, she couldn't stop talking and would make collect calls to members of the press to rant about her innocence, about how she was going to sue everyone and that Bill Rothstein killed Brian Wells. 
So even though she is there on this, you know, guy in the freezer murder, she is telling everyone, by the way, that bombing victim, he was killed by Bill Rothstein. So in one of these rants, detectives learned that Rothstein had a roommate he'd never told police about. When they asked Bill Rothstein about his roommate, a man named Floyd Stockton, Rothstein said he was an old friend who had been staying with him for a couple months because he was running from a rape charge in another state after he had allegedly raped a disabled teenage girl. (sighs) Anyway, I'm not sure I would ever describe a friend that way. Yeah, no. He's a friend. He just he's running on a rape charge. No big deal. Don't mind him. Right. Police set out to find Floyd Stockton, particularly when they found out that Rumi Floyd left town immediately after the bank heist. Police also talked to two of Marge's friends, 49-year-old Ken Barnes and his 74-year-old girlfriend, Agnes Owens. Go, Aggie. You cougar. (laughs) 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 Kathy with a K has left the building. (laughs) Or the closet, as it were. (laughs) I know you love it when I do that. It's been a really long time since I've done that. It needed to be longer. Yeah. So can you imagine she's got a boyfriend, what, 25 years younger than her? Yeah. You go, Agnes. Anyway, so the younger man, Ken, (laughs) was friends with Marge because they were fishing buddies. Police talked to Ken and Agnes, wanting to know how they knew James. And they said, hey, he's Marge's boyfriend. She kept him around simply to do her bidding. And the two of them fought all the time. Agnes told investigators that at one point, Marge asked Agnes, the best way to get rid of James. Agents also discovered that Marjorie Deal Armstrong had been arrested once before for killing a boyfriend. In 1984, which was almost 20 years prior, she was arrested and stood trial for murder after shooting her boyfriend to death. However, the jury believed the defense theory that Marge killed him because her life was in danger and she was completely acquitted of the murder charges. The FBI finally found Rothstein's roomie Floyd in Washington State, where he was serving time for the rape charge. He claimed he knew nothing about the bank heist and passed a polygraph test. Bill Rothstein was also asked to take a polygraph about any involvement in the heist, and he passed as well. They were officially cleared by the FBI. A preliminary hearing on the frozen body case was held in January 2004, five months after the bank robbery. Marge was ordered to stand trial. Rothstein cooperated and his plea deal included a sentence of only a few years for abuse of a corpse. And because he was going to testify against Marge, he was allowed to remain out on bail until the fall when the official sentencing would take place. After the hearing, Marge said to the assembled reporters, that Rothstein should be charged with Brian Wells' murder. But Rothstein would never be sentenced for the frozen body case. Seven months after the hearing, he checked himself into a local hospital with pneumonia and other respiratory issues. One week later, 60-year-old Bill Rothstein died in the hospital. According to his autopsy, he had non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, a type of cancer that had metastasized to many areas of his body including his abdomen and lungs. In January 2005, Marjorie Deal Armstrong pleaded guilty, but mentally ill, to third-degree murder in the death of her boyfriend, James Roden. Due to her mental illness, she was sentenced to a psychiatric ward for 30 years rather than a prison. With good behavior, she could be out in seven years. What's interesting about Marge, and there's so much information in this case, and we have cases that are going parallel. We've got the bank heist and the frozen body and what have you. But a lot was talked about in terms of Marjorie Deal Armstrong's mental health. I saw a couple of different things. She apparently, even as a young girl, was seeing somebody for help. And this was back in like the 60s when that didn't actually happen very often. Yeah, people did not really avail themselves mental health help. Right. So a lot of the doctors diagnosed her as manic depressive or bipolar or something like that. One of them actually said she doesn't have any of those. She's just a narcissist. The other thing, too, about Marge, Kathy, is that she considered herself, but others considered her as well, to be very intelligent, much like Bill Rothstein. I find it really interesting because people who are super intelligent often have something going on. 
You know what I mean? Like they're hoarders or maybe they have a touch of bipolar. Like it's it's just not uncommon. Or they have a touch of autism or Asperger's. Something. It's yeah. like it's like our friend Kevin has a theory. Only average people are happy. And honest to God, that's like sage, like I agree. as far as I'm concerned. I think you that's know? where my happiness comes from. <laughs> <laughs> I love being average. Exactly. <laughs> I'm cool with it. So one of the reasons we watched the Evil Genius documentary was because the executive producer and co-director, a man named Trey Borzaliri, started communicating with Marge in early 2005 after she was sent to the psych ward for killing her boyfriend, James Roden. This was about one and a half years after the bank robbery. For years, Trey kept in touch with Marge through letters and through phone calls. He actually said that he recorded her phone calls so that he would have a record of what she had talked about so that he could then write her letters asking questions to something that she had said. And then create a docu-series. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) He knew he had some hot access. And honestly, it was good. You know what I mean? Oh, absolutely. It's a fantastic documentary. Yeah. In response to Trey's question, Marge told him that she shot James in her home after he threatened to kill her. He'd been threatening to kill her for 10 years, and she was fed up. She also told Trey that Rothstein said he couldn't take James out of the freezer in his garage until he finished his business project. And Marge said she found out his project was the bomb. She assumed Rothstein was the mastermind of the heist because she knew he needed money. Trey also learned from Marge that Rothstein had a blue Astro van at the time of the bank heist. Now, remember at the beginning, we mentioned that Trooper King had seen a blue van back on the day of the robbery through the woods. It turned out that at the same time Marge was writing to Trey, roughly two years after the bank robbery, she also sent a to whom it may concern letter to the Pennsylvania State Police. The letter had to do with her fishing buddy, Ken Barnes. And she said she had information for police about a cold case. And we don't know what that was. It was never revealed, but that it wasn't the bank robbery. She also brought up the bomb and said she knew the now deceased Rothstein was involved in Brian Wells' death. Pennsylvania State Trooper Gluth received this letter and after reading it, took it to the FBI. Trooper Gluth was brought into the FBI task force on the collar bomb case. And Kath, it was always referred to as the collar bomb, even though technically it wasn't a collar bomb. Right. You know, it was a torso bomb. But anyway, so this trooper had more to offer to the FBI than they realized. In 2004, after the frozen body case was completed, state police removed the contents from Marge's house and put it all in a police storage facility. Since Marge was considered to be a possible suspect in the bank robbery case, the FBI was given access. Among Marge's possessions, investigators found a letter she had written to a bank because she was upset that they allowed her father to empty out the contents of a safe deposit box that belonged to her mother before she died. Marge believed that the valuables in the box should have gone to her. It was supposed to be her inheritance. The bank where the safe deposit box was located was PNC Bank, the same bank Brian Wells robbed. So, Kath, I thought of you when I heard this. FBI lead agent Jerry Clark interviewed Marge several times at the mental facility, the psych ward. Okay, thanks. Yeah. (laughs) In the documentary, he said it reminded him of Silence of the Lambs. Ah. That's why I thought of you. (laughs) Oh. But he said to get to the interview room, they had to walk down dark, dingy hallways to get to this really, really small room. The meetings always included other agents. It was never just him, like with Clarice. Clarice. Exactly. (laughs) And ATF agent Wick said every meeting started with Marge ranting and screaming obscenities at them. Oh, my God. I mean, you saw always the the video. She like her default was to be a yeller. Right. Exactly. And a ranter. Yeah. I mean, it was more than just picking that one subject and beating it to death. Yeah. But here's where I think the narcissism diagnosis really becomes clearer to me when Agent Wick said she would do this every single time. The, The ranting. The ranting. And then FBI agent Clark would compliment her about something. Your hair looks beautiful today. Or wow, you look like, you know, you've gotten some sun or what have you. And she would calm right down and then become like a total pussycat. Oh, how funny. And that says to me, like he was definitely stroking her ego. Right. 
At the meetings, she promised these agents that she would talk about the collar bomb case if they moved her to a prison closer to Erie. Agent Clark said he wasn't sure if he could help because he was a federal agent and it was a state conviction, but he was able to arrange for a transfer, hoping, of course, that she would give them more detailed information, but she didn't. She just kept blaming the now deceased Bill Rothstein. According to ATF agent Wick, new information was compiled from the contents of Marge's house, so the task force decided to just start over again from the very beginning. The task force first looked at the video of Bill Rothstein's garage the day he took them on a tour after he told police he had the dead body in the freezer. When Agent Wick was watching this video, he stopped it when it showed a diagram on Rothstein's desk that had a strange drawing of an arrow that kind of curled up at the end. And Kath, imagine this is a horizontal line with one end of it curling upward, and at the end of this curl was an arrow. Agent Wick realized he'd seen that before. He went back to the photos taken of the bomb after they rebuilt it, and the exact same arrow was on the device. The task force now believed Bill Rothstein built the collar bomb that killed Brian Wells, and he was also responsible for the scavenger hunt Brian was given to ostensibly find keys to dismantle it. Trooper Gluth also brought Ken Barnes. Now, this is Marge's fishing buddy. Who had the much older girlfriend. Exactly. Make your noise. A hottie who was 25 years older than him. Anyway, so Trooper Gluth brings Ken to the attention of the FBI. And Ken apparently called himself Cocaine Ken. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, Cocaine Ken said that he and Marge had known each other a long time. In the fall of 2005... The FBI discovered a woman Ken had in common with Brian Wells, who was a prostitute named Jessica. It turned out that Brian, the bombing victim, would meet Jessica at Ken's house to transact business, shall we say, upstairs. Brian would then pay Jessica and she would go downstairs and use the money to buy cocaine from Ken. Federal investigators searched Ken's house and He was a hoarder, too. Honestly. Like, how did they find each other? There must be like a meetup for hoarders. Yeah, maybe, (laughs) maybe. The front of his living room was crammed with junk, but the upstairs just had a mattress in the middle of the floor. Ken admitted to sleeping on this mattress, but he also admitted that he allowed prostitutes to use it as a home base to bring their johns. I am assuming that It was, again, like this mutual, like, bring him here. It's okay. And then, by the way, when you're done, here's some cocaine that you can buy. Yeah. Anyway, Ken denied involvement in the bank robbery, even though he and Marge had been friends for a while. But he did say for sure that he knew she was involved. He told agents that Marge had solicited him to help with the bank robbery so she could kill her father. As it turned out, two years prior... When the Pennsylvania State Police were investigating this whole frozen body situation, they brought him in for questioning because he was a buddy of Marge's. Ken told detectives at that time that Marge had approached him to kill her father. Now, nothing was really done about this, but what he told them was that he said, yeah, I told her it would cost 250000 And he insisted to Marge that he needed half up front. Half up front. I need half up front. That's $100,000. <laughs> I'm not sure how good he was at the cocaine sales if he could <laughs> do math. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Not a math major, but a great drug dealer. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Mediocre. Anyway, so he tells detectives, oh, I never would have gone through it. I was just, you know, I was just leading her on. Okay. Uh-huh. uh-huh. But Marge had the idea, according to Ken, of robbing a bank so she could get the money necessary for the hit. And the note that Brian Wells handed the teller on the day of the robbery demanded $250,000. Now, this information was never passed on to the FBI. Agents only found out about it when they talked to Ken later, you know, two years later when they're sort of putting the situation together and all that kind of stuff. And so, Kath, the rumor was that because of agency rivalry, yeah, agency rivalry, resentment, who knows, the information wasn't passed on. Two years after the bank heist, 
Ken Barnes admitted that he was in on the heist and Marjorie Deal Armstrong was the mastermind. She had no idea Ken was talking to the police. But when he confessed, it was the breakthrough federal agents were hoping for. They learned through interviews with Ken that there was a pre-robbery meeting held at Bill Rothstein's house the day before the robbery. Ken said those present included Marge, Rothstein, Rothstein's rapist roommate Floyd Stockton, Robert Panetti, remember the pizza place co-worker with Brian Wells who overdosed a couple of days after the robbery, and Brian Wells. Now, this was according to Ken that Brian was there, but later, Kathy, there was a prostitute, the one that he used to meet in Ken's house. Jessica. Uh-huh. That said Brian was actually with her at that time, and so it wasn't possible. Ken said his role in the heist was to be the lookout. The next day, Brian delivered the pizzas at the radio tower site and stood there waiting to get paid for the pizza. According to Ken, roommate Floyd brought the bomb out, and as he advanced on Brian, Brian started to run. This wasn't part of the plan they'd talked about. According to Ken, Brian kept saying he didn't want to do it and was scared. Someone gave him the notes, and Marge told him that if he was caught, he should tell the police that some black guys held him down. Ken said he felt badly when he saw what happened because the bomb they talked about after Brian left the pre-robbery meeting was supposed to be fake. But Rothstein and Marge made it real. Federal agents went back to Washington to see roommate slash rapist Floyd Stockton at the prison where he was incarcerated. He was granted immunity in exchange for testifying against Marjorie Deal Armstrong. On March 27th, 2007, three and a half years after the bank heist, he gave a written confession. In it, Floyd said Bill Rothstein asked him to make a couple of pieces for a bomb, which roommate Floyd did, but Rothstein didn't like what he did, so Rothstein remade it. Roommate Floyd also said that he was ordered by Rothstein to place the device around Brian's neck. Ken Barnes and Floyd Stockton said they never really knew Robert Panetti's role. However, both said Brian Wells was part of the plans, but neither knew how or when he was recruited. According to the court records, the investigation ended on July 9, 2007, almost four years after the bank robbery where Brian Wells was killed. A criminal indictment was filed that charged Marjorie Deal Armstrong and Ken Barnes with conspiracy to commit armed bank robbery in which a death resulted and use of a destructive device in furtherance of a crime of violence. At a press conference after the indictment, Mary Beth Buchanan, U.S. Attorney for the Western District of Pennsylvania, said the FBI believed Brian Wells was both a victim and a co-conspirator. She said Brian became involved in a limited role, but never knew how it was going to end up. And Kath, at this press conference, Brian's mother, sister, and brother were in attendance. They were actually heckling the U.S. attorney. So when she said Brian was a co-conspirator, the sister yelled out, liar, liar. And then when the U.S. attorney said Brian didn't know how it was going to end up, his brother was like, you're damn right he didn't. And there was a comment on the documentary, which was, yeah, nobody had ever seen a U.S. attorney be heckled at a press conference before. But yeah, yeah, I read that his family, I mean, to the bitter end, said never would he have participated in this kind of thing. No charges were filed against Brian. Instead, he was listed in the indictment as an unindicted co-conspirator, along with Bill Rothstein, who had died from cancer three years prior. A lot of people were surprised that Brian was called a co-conspirator. Other than the assertions of Marge, Ken, and Floyd... The only evidence that Brian was involved in the planning was very slim. And Kath, apparently a person contacted the authorities saying they saw Brian leaving Rothstein's house the day before the robbery. Now, this is supposedly at the pre-robbery meeting. Brian's brother, John Wells, spoke to reporters after the press conference. The family, of course, was angry about what the U.S. attorney said, as well as how they treated Brian after his death. They were still highly upset and resentful that Brian's head was cut off to remove what they believed was a collar bomb. John said 19 hours after the bomb went off, federal authorities chopped off Brian's head. Brian didn't put himself in that collar. He was just delivering pizza. 
John could not believe they were trying to blame his brother for his own murder. Trial began in October 2010, more than seven years after the bank robbery. Only Marge was on trial because Ken Barnes cut a deal with prosecutors two years prior in exchange for his testimony. And the rapist slash roommate Floyd Stockton got immunity for agreeing to testify. So, Kath, Marge took the stand in her own defense, which based on what we've talked about and what we saw about her less than charming personality. Right. That's a good way to say it. She was less than charming. But according to reports, this was actually a good thing because she came off as very relatable as she talked about her horrific, abusive childhood. The press actually believed that the testimony probably helped her because she was able to present a softer side. The trial lasted for 10 days, and after a day and a half, the jury returned its verdict. Guilty on all counts. A sentencing hearing was held four months later, and Brian Wells' sister Jean addressed the court. She stated her family's belief that her brother was not involved in his own murder. At one point in the statement, she shouted at the judge, My brother was a bomb hostage, not a bomber. Before announcing the sentence, the judge addressed the courtroom. He said Marjorie Deal Armstrong had a long history of mental illness, but there are people with those conditions who do not solicit others to kill their father or shoot someone in cold blood to silence a perceived threat or seal a man's fate by strapping a ticking bomb to his neck. He then sentenced her to life in prison plus 30 years. No one was ever charged in the murder of Brian Wells. Thank you for listening. Please follow us on Instagram, but most importantly, download, listen, and delete. Please. That really helps us. So thanks so much. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.